All right. I am here with Scott Warrens, who mm-hmm. has spent the past eight months by candlelight and inter- intermittent strobe lighting working on his masterpiece. What's up, buddy? <laughs> how are you how you doing? Good to be here. I'm all right, man. I'm got, all right. I just got out of, yeah, my my darkened quarantine and I'm out and ready to discuss music. <laughs> Good deal, man. All right. Well, uh, the first album we're going to do is the album you chose, which is Spirit of Eden by Talk Talk. Uh, Spirit of Eden is the fourth album of five albums by Talk Talk. The album was produced by Tim Freese Green and was released September 88. Before we get to the questions, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a bonus question right off the bat. And that's just that uh-huh. you mentioned right away uh, that this was your favorite album, right? Something to that effect? Yeah, I am guilty. I mean, I have to put it, I have to commit it to record. This is my favorite album. And I think it has been, I mean, essentially since I first heard it, which I believe was in 2006 is the first time I heard it. Yeah, a couple, I was living in North Carolina, actually, and I I had uh, learned a lot about music from these two guys. And they, you know, they were admittedly like snobby, kind of like hipsters and, raleigh north carolina but i loved them and they were great guys and you know one of my buddies so offhandedly oh yeah it's like the first time i heard spirit of eden by talk talk and i was like i don't know if I'm, you know i don't know it, but he, yeah but i'm gonna rush home and like you know do some research and see what the hell's going on with this if this is the kind of music that this dude's just like shooting off with from the hip like uh, I gotta maybe study up. So yeah, that was the first time I heard it. And you know, it's obviously not the most immediate record to, to put it very gently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. But as, as time went on, I, it's never left me. It just felt like my album, you know, like your favorite albums can be a number of things and you can describe them a number of ways, but for this album, and I'd imagine for a lot of people's favorite albums it feels like it's for them Mm. it feels like it was almost created for you and you arrived at it like it obviously existed before you knew or you know it's like if it's a new album you listen to it and it grows to be your favorite album you grow into it you create memories with it you have thoughts about it you read extra stuff you do the deep dive and it becomes your favorite record or you go back as someone who research, you know, like someone who's looking at old music and doing research and rolling up the sleeves like we do on this podcast. Some albums you discover and they were like waiting for you to arrive. Like, I feel like this album was always in the ether saying like, where's Scott at? <laughs> that's beautiful, man. And, and yeah, that's the exact thread I wanted to kind of uh, chase there in that there, uh, when it comes to, if you're designated as your favorite album, there's got to be some criteria there. Uh, there's got to be some feelings. For me, there's a couple albums that stick out. And a lot of it has to do with a purity, in a sense, that uh, it's an album that I liked and have liked for a long time, but it hasn't collected 
dust and it hasn't collected um, memories that taint the uh, the purity mm-hmm. and like the the joy that come with with uh, listening to it. Rage Against the Machine, Battle of L.A. is one of those for me because nice. like I loved it when I when I was a kid when it came out. I've listened to it who knows how many times and still over time like it comes back to me with that same force and that same joy. Uh, so I, I just wanted to poke at that because the fact that you said that it was your favorite and you're such a, you know, such a listened man uh, when it comes to music, uh, I, I figured that was, um, you know, a big deal for you to, to say something like that. So uh, with that, we can we can just drop right into the question. So first one, how does this album make you feel, Scott? <laughs> well, uh, beyond, you know, what I already said, it, it makes me at the risk of just being too, you know, like visceral about it and emotional. It just, it makes me feel again, like it's for me, like I discovered it and it always felt right, but it feels like a secret to me. Like I have, I have been invited into something. I maybe, I don't know if, it's it's almost it's hard to put words to it like i feel like it was there the world was there and i like stumbled in or i was like you know gently summoned in by the sirens of this album uh yeah it feels like feels like a secret it feels like something that you're a fly on the wall and you're seeing something you're seeing music being made and unfolding organically in a way that you know, of all the music I've listened to, this this album is singular. Um, and I don't know if that's like a banal comment, like it's a singular album, but it really is. Nothing, nothing really came before it. There was, you know, jazz and there was a lot of what was going on in the 80s. And, you know, this album synthesizes disparate, very disparate um, reference points like jazz, ambient, classical, you know, um, but uh, there was nothing that really came before it. And obviously I wasn't a five-year-old or six-year-old listening to this record. Uh, you know, I was born in 82, this came out in 88. Uh, I can't pretend that, you know, my dad had this on vinyl when I was seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it makes me feel like I, I, I discovered a secret. Uh, it's, it's breathy, but it's intense. It's, it's spiritual, but it's human um it's you know it it kind of like kind of runs the gamut um sonically i mean it, it's essentially birthed a subgenre post rock yeah you know? um yeah. yeah so i guess there's probably room to get into that later but uh, i don't want to pontificate too long on my feelings it's all good <laughs> that i mean that's something that uh obviously comes up in any level of research you do about this album is that it birthed um, artists like, uh, maybe not birth, that's not the right word, but it, at least influence artists like Radiohead um, and and some others that, that we like. But yeah, it seems like an album like this with so much space and certainly a lot of vocal, vocal accompaniment, but a lot more empty space, it leaves a listener uh, a lot more ground to come to their own conclusions about mm-hmm. where it fits in their life. And and I yeah, found definitely over the course of the album, um, 
that a lot of the the colors are are positive for sure it feels in a lot of ways like encouraging and triumphant to me but it's up to you to kind of place that into how it works in your mm-hmm. life you know and and I, this was a challenge for me if i'm going to answer the question directly yeah uh, let me uh, for the for the sake of the record how yeah. does this make you feel? I know you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm curious because I, yeah, I don't get to like discuss this record like this with anyone, um, and I'm very curious to know how this made you feel. Well, it's cool, man, because I'd never heard this for sure. Um, I was only glancingly aware of Talk Talk before this. I only knew uh, "It's Your Life" uh, or "It's sure. My Life" it was like the only track that I think I knew. Thank, by thanks, Gwen Stefani. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it made me feel contemplative. Uh, I had to really kind of dig into my bag to really come up with ways to articulate this album, because this is not a genre I tend to uh, flirt with. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to use kind of like you know, the uh, some artists on the fringes of, of like my vocabulary uh, to really come up with ways to contextualize everything that was going on. So contemplative challenged, I felt challenged in, in a way to kind of piece this all together. Um, but then ultimately encouraged and optimistic because that's how the album felt to me and feels to me. And when I it, when I return to it, it'll be, you know, like an ambient track uh, to produce some some positive vibes, it it is uh, also like continually interesting that it, you know, I, I was not into Talk Talk, had no prior experience with them, so it was also exciting in that way because it was there's there's only so many artists albums I can go into, and that, that sounds a little pretentious, but um, where I really don't have like a frame of reference like that, you mm-hmm. know, and that really kind of opened the aperture of, of my understanding with music. And, and I, I enjoyed that. So overall, I'd say, uh, it was a challenging album for me to, to break into. I remember <laughs> as I was, and, and definitely up, not where you want to start with this band also. So, I mean, thank you for the go like undertaking it. And I do want to put myself on blast because you definitely shouldn't start here. This isn't the way to get into something. No, but, and that's just... Go that's, ahead, what you were saying, sorry. No, all good. Uh, that's just where I was going, is that I <laughs> I kind of deliberately tried to carve out really, like, really catered moments to listen to this album. You know, like, I'm, you know, I, I'm feeling good. I just worked out and, you know, maybe I had a smoke and I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down and... I'm going to light a candle and I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to really soak this in, you know. And so ultimately, that's just kind of silly because you're trying to like curate like an experience for the album. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, I, I listened to the Talk Talks albums in order because when we talked about it on the teaser, you talked about their arc. And that's something I'm sure we're going to talk about more here. But it's fascinating. It's a, a band mm-hmm. that goes from from making more commercially driven, more standard music of its time to music that didn't exist before it came out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're contemporaries, you know, they formed in 81, the first record was 82. And the first two very much cohere to the new wave, new romantic kind of thing that was going on. 
um, I would say Duran Duran, Tears for Fears, um, a band called Japan. Do you know Japan? I don't know Japan. It's another English like art pop kind of new wave group. Uh, David Sylvian is the leader of that group. Um, Simple Minds, almost to a degree like Brian Ferry um, in, in that middle record. Uh, but those would be kind of the analogs when they came out. So yeah, first two albums are are new wave, new romantic, and then third record, which I call the bridge album, takes yeah. a lot of those elements. But that's where, and I think I misspoke in the when we cut the trailer for this episode, <laughs> and I said there was nothing really to that suggested that an album like Spirit of Eden was going to be something they did which is incorrect. It's on the record that came before. There's a song called Chameleon Day on uh, their third album, The Color of Spring. And that's essentially, you know, in context, when you hear that, you might not think much of it. And it's only like, you know, three minutes. It's the shortest thing. It almost seems like an interlude, you know, between two gigantic pop songs. Yeah. Um, but that would have been where they kind of showed their hand. And obviously record four and five are these pop post you know post rock ambient jazz experimental sound pieces. collages sound col yeah they're not even like <laughs> records they're impressions very impressionistic it honestly and i know that this could blow the doors off the whole thing but i have to make this compare <laughs> i had to make this comparison because because it is something i've always thought when i first heard these five records by talk talk uh it's the radiohead arc it yes. is most 100 most go ahead yeah it is exactly the radiohead arc radiohead yes. for you know and it happened over the same period of time like nine to ten years yeah um i think radiohead was like 93 to 2001 and talk talk was like 82 to 91 so it was just literally like 10 years later exactly 10 years later radiohead gives you pablo honey and the bends which are straight ahead rock records alternative yep rock matches the time, the time the, yep. you know the, the music of right the time. in the time yep. and then they're like oh record three now we're gonna start pulling yeah. in things that were probably always there in the artist's mind i wonder if you know like a mind like mark hollis who's the lead of talk talk or tom york you wonder you kind of suspect that that was inside of them and they were aware of it but very calculatedly like revealed that on their third record so okay computer is the spirit of eden this talk talk spirit of eden yep. and then we go nuclear then we go nuclear. absolutely out outer space and you get spirit of eden and talk talks uh last record laughing stock and you get uh kid a and amnesia totally i was thinking about that uh throughout the process and you'd think that hollis and tom york share or at least shared in the moment kind of a suspension of disbelief with their status as rock stars when they were making this music that was commercially accepted. They were on, you know, he's hanging, Tom York's hanging out with Bono, you know, and then a rejection, a rejection of, of you know, wanting that path and creatively just going in another direction. Um, definitely some similarities there uh and i found i found radiohead uh breadcrumbs and and that's probably not the right way to say it but i i found music that sounded a lot like radiohead throughout talk talks um kind of catalog so yeah good deal i i think we can probably move on 
from there, let's say number two, what's the most interesting instrument on this album? <laughs> well, for as a matter of passing it along to posterity, I have the the credits here. I got the the vinyl. So let nice. me really quickly go over all of the instruments. And it's similar take, for, take for our time, next record baby. as well. <laughs> but uh, okay, we've got we've got uh, drums, electric bass, harmonium, piano, organ, guitar. Uh, vocal, percussion, dobro, 12-string guitar, harmonica, Mexican bass, double bass, trumpet, violin, shozigs, bassoon, oboe, clarinet, cor anglaise, and of course, the choir of Chelmsford Cathedral. <laughs> I, I'm impressed just that you enunciated all of those with no mistakes that's that's what i'm impressed about there <laughs> so yeah we've got a we've got we've got a um a dead sea scroll of instruments on this album <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of players but uh honestly i the show zigs is okay it's a an instrument created by a man named hugh davies uh and he was a composer and he just built instruments he was like a maker of random instruments and the shozigs uh was named for let's see here uh, a generic name for any instrument housed inside an unusual container and that's all we really get about the shozigs so the first one the reason it's called shozigs is the original instrument and this is stuff he makes with you know bells and whistles found objects household items um pieces of guitar you know pieces from other instruments that he just kind of guts and repurposes um and shozigs was named after it was housed in like the last volume of an encyclopedia that covered the subjects s-h-o to z-y-g whoa that's amazing <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna i'll only i'll only say the word you've said the word pretentious and so i'll say it one time to talk about this, you almost can't avoid sounding that way. But I don't mean it. Doesn't mean it no, doesn't have to I be didn't that catch way. That. You're good. It doesn't. It doesn't have to. But uh, that's the most interesting instrument. Um, I his voice has always been an instrument to me, and it's sure. a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people don't like his voice. It's very throaty, strained. The word always used is plaintive, like mm. mournful. Kind of. It sounds like he's kind of. You know exercising some like complicated feelings <laughs> um but i love his i love his voice that shows it is the most interesting instrument um but i love the organ uh over the whole record mm -hmm. the organ um and the harmonium like that texture is just so beautiful um i think it's one of the most important instruments as a drummer i love the drums it's everything so a little background and we can dig into this you know couple questions down the road but the way this was built it was kind of like stitched together you yes. know and and you read the you know the wiki not a lot is known about it um musicians would be invited in to this old like church converted to a studio and it's like dark and yeah they're you know who the hell knows what's going on it's like yeah welcome you got your bassoon i see like right this right this way sir and you're like led you're like led through a haunted haunted house of like <laughs> into a recording booth and it's like door shuts behind you like one of these songs comes through the headphones and you're just asked to like 
play for eight hours. <laughs> Hollis comes in and yells at you. <laughs> no, I'm sure no one saw Hollis. He's just in the corner, like with his legs crossed, like, right, right. dark sunglasses on, like, I don't know, chief in a heater or something. Like, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the way it was, the way it was made, it was, it was put together. It was very, this isn't, these aren't like live pieces. And you know, yeah. this is something that never, Hollis didn't want to tour anyway, you know, uh, after 86. I mean, he was like, he's one of those guys that was just always reticent to go on the road and never wanted to in the first place, probably. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. There's so much to say, but, uh, yeah, I think think you covered covered it. it. What did you, what did you think is what, what instrument, like what, what stood out sonically to you? Uh, I've got a couple things and piggybacking off of what you said, uh, I believe in the pitchfork review of spirit of Eden, the writer mentioned Hollis's voice as word swallowing, something like that. (laughs) And I, I couldn't get away from that, uh, for the remainder of all the talk talk I listened to, uh, the organ is a really interesting piece, not only in this album for them, but for a lot of their other music, uh, Color of Spring, I really loved. By the way, uh, I like that's all the one. You, that's the one you start with. That's the one I would say you start with as Color of Spring. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the first two albums. I got to be or honest. Or you just like, go, yeah, or you just go straight one to five. Honestly, I, I re- that's really was my approach. It's really funny, man. I, I like I said, I was very deliberate about like when I got to Spirit of Eden. It was like, all right, I'm gonna listen to the first albums. I'm gonna take all these notes. And then, you know, for Color of Spring, like as they transition, I'm gonna really focus in and then I'm gonna find like the perfect moment to listen to Spirit of Eden. Yeah. It's stupid. It's just like it was just like my process or whatever. But uh no, that's good. Um the organ uh comes and goes throughout their albums in a really cool way. I, one of the notes I have on Color of Spring was you had me at classic rock organ, uh, which, uh, you know, that sound is is uh, something that's familiar to just about anyone that listens to music, but has a very key signature with, with a lot of those, like, big, broad, you know, Brit, uh, British invasion bands. I heard I heard some Who in their music, like the first couple albums. I heard okay, yeah. uh, Floyd, for sure, in the spaces, mm-hmm. you know, the empty mm-hmm. space. Uh, now, as far as the, the instrument for Spirit of Eden, it was pretty quick and easy for me uh, just because of a like a very specific emotional tie to another album. Now, uh, on the first track, The Rainbow, uh, there's a very raspy trumpet, and it reminded me of uh, Miles Davis' uh, Sketches of Spain. Uh, have yep. you spent any time with that one? I was going to say the the records that like, you know, we were talking before any album that came before Spirit of Eden was like a jazz record or like a classical yes. album. I feel those were the touchstones. Um, yeah. Sketches of Spain is amazing. And and uh, in a silent way is another Miles Davis record that um, certainly would be a harbinger of like some sounds you hear on this album. In a, In a silent way, you said? Yeah, in a silent way, it was uh, sixty nine. When was sketches? Sixty seven, sixty three. I don't, know. I a, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, but there is a lot of like the trumpet sound and a lot of the you know very airy, spacious kind of horn sounds. Um, yep, nod to Miles Davis. Hollis's uh, 
you know, some of his heroes were like uh, Coltrane, Miles Davis, Claude Debussy. Um, you know, he was very much inspired by like those artists. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I would say that in my limited vocabulary, like I said, in, in uh, appraising music like this, it seemed in cadence that Miles Davis was the artist that I heard the most often. And Sketches of Spain is amazing. I, I, I'd I say that Kind of Blue was kind of my gateway Miles Davis album. Sure. But yep. uh, Will of the Wisp on Sketches of Spain is like my favorite. Like that was like my, oh, I love Miles Davis. Uh, yeah, You know, definitely. transition. But yeah, so the trumpet was played by Henry Lothar. He also appears on It's My Life in Renee and uh, Tomorrow Started. Uh, on Laffy Stock, he does the trumpet on Taphead, and he actually does some work on the Hollis solo album, too. So uh, a yeah. guy that Hollis wanted to keep around. Um, so, yeah, I found that to certainly be the most interesting uh, instrument to me, mostly based on kind of my past listening. I love when he uses the kind of distorted harmonica. I feel like that's <laughs> kind of a repeating uh, theme in in Hollis's music, you know, and and it mm -hmm. to me this is this is going to be a far one, or at least a far out one. I did one listen to Spirit of Eden that was totally uh, like stream of consciousness. I was very high, and I just like <laughs> I just like I just wrote like like what I what I thought, you know, and it yeah. seemed like I was listening to the rainbow, rainbow. Sorry, the first track, and you hear like the distorted harmonica and then you hear like these kind of other sounds that are that almost felt like echoes of rock and roll you know mm -hmm. and it and it and <laughs> as it, as this album kind of became the marker for post rock and where you know art rock and and radiohead and that kind of took off it was like spirit of eden was channeling all these other sounds that used to be the main thing but now Hollis is just repurposing them as just a fabric in this patchwork that he's putting together deliberately, you know? So I, I found yeah. that really interesting. Yeah, man. No, that's an awesome insight. I, I'm, I am just uh, tickled that you have gone to this length to, <laughs> to, to uh, internalize these albums. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the album comes out, it's uh, my friend often jokes because both of our, uh, <laughs> this is such an aside. Uh, we grew up in like Roseanne households, like where Roseanne was a big thing. Okay, and that sure. harmonica in Roseanne is like so ridiculous. But my friend, <laughs> my friend, when he listens to this album and he loves it, but he always jokes about like that opening, you know, harmonica, like squelch that essentially yeah. introduces Rawr. this record. Yeah, he's just like, this is like Roseanne on acid. Or <laughs> that's perfect that's so perfect yeah um but yeah it uh dude it's but then i think you first hear his voice like at 3 30 like the 3 30 mm. mark or something okay and he the opening lyric is oh yeah the world's turned upside down yeah which is like I'm sure that's how the the crew at EMI Records felt. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta sell this shit? What the hell? <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, the most <laughs> the, the the meat of this is like you know 
in question for, but, uh, you know, yeah, not to, not to talk about that, um, prematurely, but wow. What a, what a thing to have to like, like accept as a record label that essentially stroked a blank check to this band and said, yeah, we'll stay out of your hair. Like, here's the blank check. Like, let us know when you're ready. <laughs> Hollis is like, ching. <laughs> yeah. Hollis is like, now I can do exactly what I've always wanted to <laughs> yeah. do, which is this. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, beautiful. Number three. Uh, what's your favorite song on this album? I'm, I'm very curious to, to hear what you think here. Yeah. there. I mean, there's a, it's one thing, right? I mean, it, it's 41 minutes and it could feasibly be taken just as one piece. But, um, I like how it's broken up, especially on vinyl. You know, it's three tracks, three tracks, and those mm. kind of have their own little arcs. But um, I don't know. It's funny. De uh, Desire is the most dynamic. I think, like, you can make a case that Desire kind of holds all of the dynamic energy within it. It's, in a way, sort of like, I mean, it's in the middle of the records, but it's kind of, you know, it gives you all the flavors, sort of. But um there's a case to be made for the rainbow, but inheritance was always the one that stuck mm. with me. That's, that's, uh, my favorite, uh, Oregon, the organ in that is just like amazing lyrically. It's essentially my interpretation of it. And, you know, obviously their interpretations are what they are. They're singular and personal, but it's ostensibly about mother earth and, you know, how mother earth just takes a beating from humans renews regenerates like it's always there like the cycle is always there and you can read inheritance very optimistically or you could read it kind of as a bummer like as an existential mm. absurdist bummer like what the hell is the point of existing mm. but the answer is you see it in nature like all around like mother nature we live amongst you know earth like earth is our home and this song really beautifully uh captures that sentiment um and that's yeah that's certainly not something you you get in music a lot is like love letters to earth <laughs> that's beautiful i i did not tune into that frequency on that song or at least i didn't interpret it that way i, I don't think i interpreted much frankly i'm looking at my stream of consciousness notes from that one listen and the only note <laughs> i have on inheritance <laughs> is horns <laughs> so it, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a colossal uh, undertaking to just try to be like what does this mean <laughs> yeah yeah uh well uh, what, was, before, what was yours yeah so uh before i get mine just just to bounce off of the the tracks that you mentioned for desire I had I had a couple notes, and uh, so raspy sketches of Spain trumpet. That's the other song with the trumpet that and the rainbow. Uh, then I had <laughs> I don't even know how I put this in, and it I think it may open up a little bigger conversation in that there's a there's a through line with certain artists that I think Talk Talk is is like a like a distant cousin of, and that's a, a conversation about like Bon Iver, um, Kanye West. And then Arthur Russell, I, I don't know sure. why, but like during Desire, I, I just wrote down Bonnie Vare, yay, Arthur Russell. And I just think that uh, 
there's there's something to be said about artists that have already conquered the ability to write the pop song, you know, get people in commercially, that type of thing, but they're searching for something else. They're, some, they're searching for something in the space in between the notes, you know? Sure. Uh, and that, that obviously came to me when I was listening to that song. Then the other note I had was intense on desire. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm so you listen to this on headphones like a few times. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a monster on headphones, especially that song that sonically you're going from like zero to a hundred over the course of six minutes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so, uh, my favorite is the rainbow. Um, the notes I have on that one were just the raspy sketches of Spain, trumpet, Floyd, uh, the distorted harmonica, the echoes of rock, like I said. And then to me, it, like, again, my vocabulary is limited, but I just said a really good Radiohead song. Like, this is just a, a song mm-hmm. that, you know, would have been maybe one of my favorite Radiohead songs. Um, and then it just sets well, yeah. the tone very well for the rest of the album. Um, the one that stuck with me the most, for sure. Yeah, and it's it might be... I mean, to me, you know, you, I mean, you know how much, what do you say about your favorite record? I, I love them. I love all these songs like my children, um, yeah. you know, but yeah, that's certainly one of my favorites. I mean, it's yeah. Number two or three, if I were forced to rank it, the rainbow is, it's a great intro to this and you really see, I mean, right out of the gate, the pop, you know, post rock references are all there. It's about like timber and texture yes. and space and just kind of you know playing with with sonically like playing with different like fabrics i guess is would be the it's like it, so i'm not a musician and, and i don't pretend to be it seems like you you have a little more experience than i do but it it, it starts to get into like the four dimensional aspects uh that really deliberate musicians, thinkers can play with wherein maybe artists that are just playing the two-dimensional, three-dimensional game aren't able to get into. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as a musician, as a drummer, the only thing I know how to do really is, is play drums. I'm nowhere near any of this stuff like jazz. I feel like the, I, the only reason I was ever turned off by jazz, like as I, grew as a person and incorporated new music into my life was that it just always seemed so like inaccessible to me like I never had I never had anyone in my life playing jazz records like I never it seemed like jazz is for music nerds and I'm like I don't I'm not at that level so yeah I but now as I get older you know I can see a world and when I'm 72 like living you know, in a cabin somewhere far, far away, like listening to jazz albums and making <laughs> coffee in the morning and shit. But it's like something you graduate to. Uh, I think that's right. I, I think that seems to be like the appropriate arc, because when you come across someone who's like, oh, I only listen to jazz, you're like, oh, so you're so this. So this conversation's over with. Yeah, <laughs> you've graduated. <laughs> All right. Uh, number four. Uh, what's an interesting insight about this album's production or story? Uh, I guess what we know is essentially there on the wiki page. Uh, engineer Phil Brown, I think that's where you got, maybe that's where you got your opening quote. He gives us a couple little pictures uh, and all we get from the engineer, 12 hours a day, quote, 12 hours a day in the dark, listening to the same six songs for eight months became pretty intense. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. 
uh yeah i mean just the way it was built it's it again everyone recorded everything i'm sure there are hours and hours and days of tape on this album which i would basically give my left testicle to hear but yeah. uh, all we get is 40 minutes and it's yeah. it was all put together you know this is all like post-production like stitching a quilt together like we mentioned earlier um so that's how it was made what does he say uh oh yeah another quote from the engineer it was very psychedelic we had candles and oil wheels <laughs> strobes <laughs> strobes going sometimes just total darkness in the studio you'd get totally disoriented no daylight no time frame <laughs> wild totally wild dude yeah. i mean um, i feel like they need to make a a two hour indie black and white movie about the production of this film. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, so it was, yeah, it was recorded at Wessex Studios, which was originally built in 1881 wow. as a hall, as a hall of uh, St. Augustine's Church. Wow. Um, and Wessex Studios actually hosted, you talk about those echoes, as far as the actual echoes of musicians that recorded in that studio. You've got Sex Pistols, King Crimson, XTC, which I love, uh, Queen, Rolling Stones, Pete Townsend, and Jesus. The Damned. So kind Jesus. of punk, but like heavy hitters, man. The Stones, Townsend, you, you mentioned The Who. Maybe there was like a, a specter of a Who song in there. <laughs> and like Hollis ripped it out of the air, dude. I mean, Townsend was in there probably like, you know, two years earlier or something. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's so true. I, I think the... The most they ever sounded like the Who specifically was on "It's My Life," uh, the song "It's You," like the mm -hmm. echo, the repeating, the repeating, um, not echo, but I guess it's an echo, like the the repeating refrain of like what he was saying. It reminded me of like Quadrophenia, the Who, it, sure. like very specifically. Um, mm -hmm. But <clears throat> to answer the question. I, I didn't have anything specific. I, I just wanted to talk more about like that recording environment. And I think there's a very, very apt comparison here. And that's Sergeant Peppers. Like, uh, oh, wow. they, they spent obviously, I think they were in from like November through like, I think it was May of 67. And, and it was a lot of these same processes. It was, it was a lot of like, figuring out exactly what they wanted things to sound like, knowing that they weren't going to be playing it live. The Beatles had just announced before this album that they didn't want to perform live anymore. And Paul had this idea uh, to make a band, take a break from being the Beatles. And they, they, they threw together this super tight concept album that was very intensive when it came to the recording, you know, and in a lot of ways, like probably was one of the main splinters uh, for the Beatles as they began to break up. But they, you know, they walked out of the studio with this album that was super tight and, you know, obviously one of the five or ten most influential albums ever. With this one, it, it seems like just in in concept, I, I kept thinking about it, like, like uh, the way that they'd bring in all these musicians just to hear very specific sounds from their instruments and then not use them in a coherent synchronistic way, but just like, I I'm going to weave this into this other melody that I have with, you know, Lothar's trumpet or whatever. Um, yeah. so I, that, that was the thing I kept thinking of. And just, I mean, we've already covered it a couple of times, but 
what a weird what a weird way to make an album and you'd think that uh especially reading that the way it went before I started really digging into the music, I was like, man, this is probably going to be a fucking dark album. Like I'm going to probably have to go to like some weird places to like really analyze this album. But like we said, there's so much positive color and so much, uh, you know, encouragement throughout the album in the melodies and stuff. So it's, it's Mm -hmm, funny that that was the result. A lot is, put on the listener admittedly so it's a it's a burden to carry but yeah to your point those are i i love the insights i I love hearing i keep saying loves talking about this uh but no it's all that stuff is just very insightful um it's kind of like how a great director works almost you you were talking yeah like we're gonna shoot this we're gonna shoot this film and then the final product lands and the actors are like what like I didn't expect expect it to be put together like this like I don't know if I even co-sign off I feel like my art was like co-opted from me and used for some purpose I had never considered yeah yeah that's interesting Um, dig it all right uh do you have anything else on uh, no no I was gonna say let's press on I feel like we had we had fished that one out we'd been joking about it from the get-go there uh, number five, is this the artist's best album? Well, we know my answer. Uh, this one and their and Laughing Stock, which would be their last album in 1991. They're two peas of the same pod. Um, yeah. To me, to me, I of course I, it's my talk. They're my talk talk albums. You know, um, the Color of Spring is obviously the next best to me. And then it's my life. And then the first one, it just literally goes in reverse order. Like I feel that their records just got better as they went on. So Um, you would say that Kid A is Radiohead's best album. I'm a Kid A amnesia guy, but I love OK Computer. Like those are, that's the holy trinity. Like Kid A or Radiohead and Talk Talk have the same like holy trinity like arc. It's Mm. OK OK Computer. Yeah, Uh, I'd probably... It's like depending on the depending on the weather, really. But yeah, Amnesiac and an OK Computer are probably my favorite. Kid A is right there. Okay. Um, yep. Same with Talk Talk. What What about you? I would imagine yours was Color of Spring. That's my guess. But what do you think? So there's a lot of ways to take this question. Obviously, I think I think the way it's framed, it it probably is is best derived as most influential greatest album like greatest album probably would have been like the the more the better word to use when I was drawing up these questions so in that sense I would say yes it's clearly their most influential uh clearly the album that uh stamps themselves onto the the rock canon the post-rock canon wherever they uh belong now, as far as favorite, Color of Spring is my favorite. It is it yeah. is my favorite of their albums. Um, I Don't Believe You, Living in Another World, like, amazing. Oh, I, like, yeah. love those songs. Give it and, up. Uh, yeah. So I, I also thought about the Beatles uh, catalog a little bit, too. Like, um, is, like, like, Color of Spring being, like, Revolver? And then Spirit of Eden is is the Sgt. Pepper's, stuff like that. That that would be apt for, for the Beatles comp, yeah. Yeah, and if you went like two steps further saying Party's Over is like help and then It's mm-hmm. My Life is Rubber Soul, uh, you know, like I, I love yeah. the Beatles arc. It's just like 
it's just like it's like the standard. It's like a it's like a aspirational, you know, like north star for other yeah, yeah artists. Yeah, Polaris for sure. I was just gonna say, you're as an artist, you can say. I'm doing it right if this is my artistic arc. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm going to, you know, we're trying to make friends up front and shake everyone's hand. And then I'm going to start getting ornery and like stubborn and wanting to do my own thing. Then I'm just going to say, fuck you and completely do my own thing. And then after <laughs> that, we'll see, we'll see after that what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I, you're, you're big on arcs. And I remember a couple episodes ago on your podcast, the Is It Safe podcast, which if you're listening, everyone should go listen to that podcast because it's awesome. But you guys were doing you were talking about the Radiohead arc and I'm like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to shoehorn the Radiohead arc into my first podcast with Scott if it kills me. That's actually that's actually my band name, the Radiohead arc. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Amazing. All right, cool. Uh, so let's get to the last talk talk question here, and this is our custom question. So, um, yeah, I've got I've got a good one here, and it's it's almost uh, it's a little trivia ish. So we'll see how it goes. Uh-oh. So, uh, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock both received tens on Pitchfork. Uh, how many artists do you think have received multiple tens from Pitchfork? And I and I'll say that uh, as a as a qualifier. I did a, a good amount of research on this, and they, they promote and demote albums over the years a little bit. So the number mm-hmm. of albums that have actually received a 10 is somewhere between 130 and 140, somewhere in that range. So what's your guess as to how many artists have received multiple 10s from Pitchfork? Uh, I'm, I'm just flipping back through the last 10 years or something since I've been really reading that publication. Uh, separate artists. I, let's go with five. It's more. And it was more than I thought it would be, too. Uh, so it's 18. But oh, damn. regardless, Talk Talk is, is listed with some pretty heavy hitters here. And I'll, I'll sprint through them as best I can here. So Beatles, Velvet Underground, Neil Young, Stones, Bowie, Joni Mitchell, Eno, Zeppelin, Joy Division, Springsteen, Prince, R.E.M., Smiths, Talk Talk, Public Enemy, Nirvana, Radiohead, Pavement. So, yeah, I forgot they reviewed a lot of records. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and I (laughs) think there's an even more prestigious distinction for them to have received a 10 on first listen. So I think that only mm-hmm. goes back like 10 years or something. There's only been like seven or eight albums that have received a 10 on first listen. They'll uh, retroactively go back and be like, oh, Sgt. Pepper's is a 10, you know, yeah. that type of shit. But uh, but when my beautiful dark twisted fantasy lands and everyone's that's like, one of them. 10? Yeah. yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of them for sure. Kid A was nice. was uh, in real time as well. Um, but anyway, anyway, what do you got for me? Um, would Madonna like this record? uh no i was uh so it's funny actually when you said this or when you sent this i uh wrote all these questions i thought they were like for me um but i guess i'll ask you a similar question and maybe we covered it but who like my original question was what albums would i recommend for someone who loves this album as much as i do um, and that mm. would be, I wonder what you would have to say. I mean, I made a list because I thought that's how it worked. That was my bad. 
but who yeah like kind of who is this for like who would you recommend this in good conscience um you know and what records did this kind of make you feel like you wanted to explore well first of all the fact that you were confused on you know how the question works that means that one of my producers is going to get fired so <laughs> that's that's on them uh so if you could could you reframe the question i i don't think i understood the dynamic of the question so it's it's who, what albums if if someone yeah, liked this guess, album they would they would guess, listen to yeah i guess generally speaking i mean what specific albums is maybe like putting you on the spot unless you have like specific records you thought of that I mean, I know you mentioned Sketches of Spain. Um, mm. That's a good one. Uh, but yeah, like artists and uh, albums that you would recommend or directions that you would send someone. If they really like this album, like where do you go? Where would you recommend? That's interesting. And and I think that I'd send them in some directions that I've only begun flirting with. And in some, in a lot of ways, it's it's. Uh, based on your influence, uh, you getting me into some more ambient music. Uh, and then specifically, uh, when we were hanging out back in the Detroit days, you recommended the Blue Nile record to me, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is is certainly a cousin of this album in some ways. I think it came out in 89. So, yep. you yep. know, would have would have been at least partially absorbed by this album. But then Miles Davis, I, I really think Miles Davis just feels like this album in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think Hollis, I, I think Hollis, you can see bent the album to to feel in cadence similar to Miles Davis. Uh, mm -hmm. But then ambient music. Um, the most, the last Floyd album that came out that I sent your way. At yeah, that point, was really surprisingly good. I, I really love that album. And I, I just think, uh, you know, ambient music that has at least elements of rock music to it like that. Uh, I would say that uh, the Atticus Ross and, um, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. That, that's a little more industrial. Like, I, I don't think that's super related. Uh mm -hmm. So I'd say my vocabulary is, again, a little limited, but well, those are a let couple me, examples. You basically nailed it anyway. I mean, I so I answered my own question, and I these were the records I came up with. Was okay. Laughing Stock, the one that comes out after, obviously. It's like exactly the sure. same album, essentially. Um, Miles Davis, In a Silent Way, I mentioned. Brian yep. Eno, Ambient One, Music for Airports. Aphex Twin, Selected Ambient Works, Volume 2. The Blue Nile Hats that you mentioned. Um, the Derudi column, uh, first couple albums, and the album that uh, essentially post-rock the term appeared first in the uh, review for Bark Psychosis's album Hex, which is nice. another UK band that came out in like '94. That's where, uh, yeah, that's where the term actually like originated. But those are the albums. So you're, I mean, you're on the right track, like sonically and um and everything that's beautiful man well if people dig this album you know there's a couple examples uh for them to deepen that uh that muscle get some more reps uh mm -hmm. working out that that <laughs> that thing so cool man i think we i think we i think we did it on the talk talk yeah thank you for indulging me that was great um 
let's let's dig into this very similar record next. <laughs> <laughs> another album that's just really hard to get into you know intellectually <laughs> <laughs> no it's great it, it serves as a great uh, counterweight to what we just pontificated about for 45 minutes <laughs> i agree yeah yeah man do you want to do the uh like the essentials of this one we'll, we'll get rolling yeah, so uh, I'm gonna kick you the questions. Yeah, yeah. Let me get my let me get my notes together here. Um, so yeah, uh, what are we doing? Do I introduce you and, and say what record you? Yeah, let's start with the uh, like the this is the blank album of blah 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 and all that shit. Do you have that? I can do oh damn! Now. I don't know if I did that. I don't know if I did that homework. Uh, I got this, it. No worries. This is so. the first of seven hundred albums, <laughs> and it came out in uh, I think July of nineteen eighty three. That's correct. It came out July twenty seventh of nineteen eighty three. It's on Sire Records. It was produced by three different individuals by the name of Reggie Lucas, Kill John me. Jellybean Benitez, and Mark Caymans. Killing. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into Bay City's babe, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, regarding Madonna's debut album, self titled. How does this album make you feel? Well, Scott, this album makes me feel all kinds of different ways. I would say, right off the bat, don't even need to dig into thinking about it too much. This album makes me feel energetic. I feel charged up. Uh, makes me feel like dancing. Uh, it makes me feel like this is now one of my favorite pop albums. Uh, it's eight songs, and six of them are good, you know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> six, and a, six and a half, I would say. Yeah. So I, I would say, ultimately, that this scratches a very specific itch for me. It makes me feel satiated. Um Ooh. There's just not a lot of like this kind of synth pop that I that I really like. I've said to you many other times how much I love Rick James. And mm -hmm. to me, there's like 10 awesome Rick James songs, but they're like, for me, they're like very, very important songs that some of the only songs I really like to dance to. And I feel like this Madonna album feels a little connected to that. So I feel mostly fired up. Uh, you know, this album, there's there's so much urgency and sex and immediacy uh, with all the songs. It's just, it's uncomplicated and it's something I can put on and enjoy without uh, thinking too much. So I'll turn it back to you. How does this album make you feel, Scott? Similarly, uh, I mean, I've got... Uh carefree celebratory hedonistic uh written down hedonistic. Um, it is man give it to me it, it yeah. is i mean it's <laughs> it's a it's very you you feel it you know you just kind of want to like rip your clothes off and let it all <laughs> hang out for a minute um also you know going a little bit deeper it's it uh so i was born in april of 82 and recording for this record began like a week after I was born, essentially. Nice. So there's some sort of like DNA <laughs> kind of happening. And I feel, you know, almost nostalgic in a way, it, like for times that I do remember and times that I don't. Because obviously, I mean, you've got three, four plus 
huge songs on this album yeah. that were a part of the 80s you know i mean Big madonna time. was just miss 80s from like 1980 until 1990 she was just yeah. omnipresent you know she was just always there so i grew up with this uh you know like madonna songs that when my mom would drag me to tj maxx or something like that it's like <laughs> madonna was just always there and that's what stars are right like they're just they become like larger than any sum of their like parts yeah uh, yeah so yeah madonna was just i remember madonna the whole my entire life and a lot of these songs uh as well so yeah it makes me feel happy hedonistic a little nostalgic um it's just an instant party this is a banger and this is an instant and, party for sure i, I mean from yep. the from the tip from the tip of the from ball from the top Luck, yep it's, it's like where you you have oh sorry go ahead you got something i was just gonna say lucky star literally sparkles it sparkles into it sparkles your in, ears yeah. i it's think the the, exact, it, <laughs> it's like the exact opposite is the rainbow that like just lumbers into your ears <laughs> It takes three minutes to before you even know it's there. But Donna's like, nope, I'm fucking here. Second one. I think, uh, and I got to give props, uh, and, I, and I don't know who wrote the article, but the Pitchfork Review says that uh, Lucky Star is like effervescent in a way to open up mm -hmm. the album. And I feel like that's just so true. You're popping it's open carbon, uh, yeah. you know, a, a ginger lemon sure. uh, kombucha <laughs> and just slugging it down. Yep, uh, dude, it's it's CO2 from A to Z. <laughs> for sure, for sure, man. Uh yeah, I think I'm good. Let's let's roll. Yeah. Um so breaking down the uh the liner notes, favorite instrument on, on this album. So I I've got a few things. I try to I try to approach these usually from a, a pretty wide stance. I think that and we're going to talk about Madonna's arc, which is long and winding <laughs> and <laughs> confusing. But uh, this is her first album. And to me, I really think that it's like the album where they cared about the music maybe the most. Like, And I think to her chagrin and and you know she wasn't in full control of this album this you know she wasn't a star yet she was a a budding star um little nani chikoni from rochester <laughs> adams uh made her way to new york and uh found herself some notoriety but yeah i think uh so you have 17 different musicians on this album playing a variety of different instruments uh, saxophone on Think of Me and a couple other songs. Uh, the Lynn drum machine, which was pretty new technology for the time, provides a, a good backing on a lot of this. You cannot underestimate the uh, the cowbell played by little Nani mm -hmm. Ciccone. Um, that's definitely the that's the cutest credit because uh, on the vinyl it's C O W B E L L E. Oh yeah, the, cute. <laughs> the cutest <laughs> instrument on the album. <laughs> I mean, it is there, and it's played by her. And Holiday and Borderline are not the same song without that cowbell. So you know, I don't know if that's her invention or whatever, but uh, certainly an instrument, interesting instrument on the album. Uh, but for me, 
there's no question that a combination of the the Moog bass and the Oberheim synthesizer are the things that stand out here. And of the time, that certainly was, um, you know, how a lot of music was made. We talk about Talk Talk. You know, her first album comes out 83. Their first album was 82. Uh, you know, come out into similar popular music environments. And uh, But it's just the way that the synthesizer is used in this album, perfectly complementing her voice. Um and it's just heavy, like on burning up, it's just thick, it's mm-hmm. wide. It's like, it's it's just like, it's not wispy. It's not coming through and just like scratching the surface. Like it's taking up space in your mind. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. bah, 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 you know? Um, so those, the combination of those two, I, I, I did a little research in trying to isolate like which songs were used by which instrument. It gets really hard. But mm-hmm. uh, the combination of both the synthesizer and the um, the bass synthesizer uh, seemed to take it home for me. What did you think on this one? Yeah, similarly as well. Um, there's a man named Fred Czar. Who yes. I put in my notes are, whatever this co-arranger Fred Czar is up to. Because he has his, <laughs> yes. he has, he has his hands on everything. Um, I mean, arguably, it's it's the, the Lindrum just because... Um, yeah. That was only manufactured for a few years, like from 82 to 85. Wow. Uh, okay. an, Amer- an American instrument that only sold 5,000 units. In no its, shit. And it's time on earth. So, yeah, this was one of uh, one of 5,000 Lindrums. Uh, the Lindrum was also used on Relax, Take nice. On Me, and uh, Tears for Fear Shout are a couple of examples of where it's used. Beauty. So, yeah, but this Fred Czar guy, I think he was, uh, I was reading something. It's kind of just a guy that got called in. If you go to his wiki page or do any, you know, digging, there's nothing there. It's just like Fred Czar is the guy that played on Madonna's debut record, and that's all you get. But yeah, uh, yeah he touches the yeah the synthesizer you mentioned, the electric and acoustic pianos, drums, Moog bass, um, the OBX, the Fender Rhodes. Um, he's the mo- He seems like like one of the more critical members of. Uh, you know, putting this all together. The Lindrum was, uh, I think all those duties were handled by Reggie Lucas, who produced okay. most of the record. And I know the Lindrum is on Lucky Star and Burning Up, for sure. Um, nice. So, yeah, the Lindrum's the most interesting, but this Fred Czar guy, as far as just what he had his hand in, credit-wise, probably the most interesting, like, cast of characters, because uh, takes a takes a village to raise a child, doesn't it? I couldn't help but think, and maybe we can get into the the arc here a little bit, but I touched on it, but it's like she didn't have her hand as much in what this album sounded like. No, definitely not. She didn't want the player. She she's like, this is too many instruments. <laughs> yeah, but but for, as, for obvious reasons, for diva esque reasons, I'm sure. For totally <laughs> diva esque reasons. But it seems to me like when it comes to the music, like that was for the best. I I went on and I mm-hmm. listened to all of her music uh, up to '98, which was Ray of Light, um, and. Uh, a lot of slogs, like a lot of slogs in there. But this this album, this first one, is just like it just it just hits so hard. And I, upon kind of initial earlier listens, it was like ah, you know, there's like 
three instruments on this album. It's just kind of like hitting the same tones, but it works the whole time. But then upon looking more at it, like there's all these little guitar parts and little bass parts that are that are intricately woven into it. I think musically it's like a way deeper album than mm-hmm, it definitely. appears at first glance. And I think that that was, <laughs> and we'll get to like what her best album was and everything, but I think that was like musically going back and and looking at all of this just for the music, which is like I said in the teaser, that's where it started for me. I, my uh, Becca and I were watching the show Happy Endings. There was a Madonna cover band, and I'm like, God, I don't know Madonna's music at all. And and I think this is a this is a place where we really differ because uh, a lot of the songs, even like Lucky Star, I probably would have guessed was her before I went back and like listened to this. But there's just a totally amorphous '80s pop machine that would have been for me like is it Cindy Lauper is it the, I don't know who cares like is it the bangles whatever I, I don't know yeah. but um you know going back through I was like whoa I don't know the music at all so starting with this one it just kind of blew me away like I was like <laughs> whoa like this album's so good and then I went through and listened to like <laughs> the forthcoming albums over the next 20 years and I'm like Jesus, like they this, all, this yeah, really fell off. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's it's a conversation about uh, you know creativity versus culture. Uh, Madonna culturally is one of the most important artists we've ever had. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you go back and I watched uh, kind of a plain documentary on her, we we watched the Truth or Dare documentary, which mm-hmm. was something she produced and put together. It's basically like a tour diary of the um, uh, the uh, Blonde Ambition tour, which was April to August of 1990. She was basically touring uh, like a prayer. Um, and going through and watching a lot of this stuff, it feels like parody uh, because we in culture over time have have like absorbed Madonna and artists like her. And then we start putting out parodies. And there was one specific parody I thought of, and that was, uh, are you up with uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek? Did you watch those? I have not seen those movies, no, sorry. <laughs> you got it, you Forgetting not, Sarah not, Marshall. Get yeah, the, I know I have to watch that. Is, is uh, Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Yes, yes. That, okay. that, that's a great comedy. Get Him to the Greek is whatever. Guy. But uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall is an all-timer. Anyway. Russell Brand plays the um, archetype of like a British rock star recovering from drugs type of thing. And uh, <laughs> they ha- they even made like mock songs for him. Um, you know, like it's 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 a little hard to describe, but just like we got to do something or African Child or some of the songs that they wrote for him. And they're just like these over the top, like we got to come together type songs. And I'm like, this sounds like Madonna, like music that Madonna was making unironically in the mid to yeah. late eighties, you know? And so, so it, it goes for me, it, it does go both ways because it feels like parody to us now, but when Lady Gaga or Katy Perry does something super outrageous, that also feels like a parody of shit Madonna was doing back in the day too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's obviously something to be derived about how important culturally she was, uh, especially for young women. But when it comes to the music, and we're still talking about the instrument along this 
uh, super wide ramble here. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to the music, I just, I just, it doesn't get any better than this album for her, uh, to me at all. Um, not even close. Uh, so long roundabout way of saying, uh, I think that the synthesizer is the best instrument. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I concur. Yeah. Right. Like, oh my, I mean, we, we really pick two doozies here in completely different yeah. fashion. Like, sure. You're yeah. like, yeah, we're doing this pod. And I'm like, I'll just pick my favorite album. That seems right. And then you get into it. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And then you're like, how about one of the like biggest pop icons ever? Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. This episode of the pod will be six hours yeah <laughs> all good uh, no yeah. it's all it's all it's all great stuff like yeah her her just her star her her power her her uh her yeah just her size is outrageous and this is the only record that that's tamped down because by the time we get to 12 months later exactly. to like a to uh like a virgin we're in outer space madonna is literally like you know at the right hand of Jesus Christ. So yeah, um, 84, 84 is like a version the year after this. And the VMAs, the first VMAs are in 84 and she does the wedding dress thing and she's rolling around. And from, from, I mean, we're off to the races at that point. We're we're selling 20, 25 million records after that. Yeah. Like a version sold 25 million records, double diamond son, like, like unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah. And true blue, I think even sold more. Yeah. True blue was right there for sure. Um, yeah, True Blue is interesting. I'll just I'll go through real quick the albums I listened to, and uh, hopefully it doesn't become too much of a slog <clears throat> like the albums are. But uh, <laughs> True True Blue was interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, so this is '86, a couple of years removed, third album, um, and there's a song called "Where's the Party" on True Blue, and I couldn't help but think that even in those couple of years, she had ascended to a you know star level that very few have ever. Uh, arisen to and and particularly in that small amount of time but the song's called where's the party and i couldn't help but think to myself on the first album she knew where the party was yeah <laughs> yeah you know yeah. like it was three three years ago you you threw that party you threw the party you were already seven beers deep whenever like everyone got to the party <laughs> um but on this this like big album turn blue that's like overproduced and and pretty sloggy for the most part, despite a, a couple of good songs. Uh, it seemed like she'd already gotten away from a little bit of just that immediacy that we find on the first album. And then the other thing on uh, True Blue was the song that I, I really derived a lot of the parody from, and it's a song called Love Makes the World Go Round, which is exactly <laughs> what I was talking about. It's like it's just yeah. like what are we doing here? Which it sounds so stupid in the time people, people were probably like, Oh, what a lovely, you know, uplifting altruistic song. But now it's like parody, just, just so much parody. It, it didn't. Yeah. It, it didn't, it didn't hold up. I got through, well, I mean, Ray of lights, like actually a pretty decent, like it's late interesting. career yeah. uh, record, but that's as far, that's same with me. The only thing I know anything about is this first one to Ray of light. Beyond that, forget about it. I don't know one note of Madonna. Yeah. Um, there's another reference in parody that I'll try to make here. Hopefully this one hits a little better. When's the last time you saw Lost in Translation? Uh, just a few years ago. I know it well. I've seen that movie like a dozen times. So I saw it for the first time uh, a couple months ago on a plane. Amazing. Like, so it's a great amazing. movie to see on a plane, actually, too. It was, yeah. The, the, the cadence definitely worked. But 
Do you recall Anna Ferris's character on Lost in Translation? Who is she? Give me so the she, context. Anna Ferris is uh, like this blonde actress. In a lot of movies, she kind of plays like a like a bimbo or, or that type of thing. But in Lost in Translation, she she is playing like a like a pop star. And um, oh, sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> she continues to run into ScarJo's. Uh, husband, you know, and they know each other mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And she's just so like, she's just the archetype of like, totally lost, you know, public <laughs> figure. And and that I like, in watching, headlights, yeah, yeah in, in watching uh, Truth or Dare, I was like, holy shit, that's Madonna like that. Like, in 91, that was Madonna. That wasn't a parody yet. Now it's a parody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, she cast a wide net. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, uh, well, let's bring it back. You want to bring it back to Earth here and yeah. the first record? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, I'll, get I'll get... let's get back to the first record. What What is your favorite song on the first record? So uh, pretty easy here. Uh, there's five or six songs I really like, but Burning Up uh, really captures the sex and the urgency that makes the mm-hmm. album what it is for me. Um, I also love Lucky Star, Holiday, Think of Me is a really good song, and then Everybody as well. Uh, but burning up is just it's it's amazing. I almost picked it's it great, for Music yeah. League uh, this this last <laughs> uh, uh, prompt here. But uh, what did you have? Yeah, uh, dude. It's, I'm, for me, it's kind of like pick the day of the week. I don't actually. Yeah. It's not as it's not as black or white for me. Um, fun, like as we ran up to this recording, um, this whole week it's been burning up. I've woken up in the morning to that song. It's like alarm goes off and it's like right when I wake up. I know. <laughs> you ever get that? You wake up in the morning and the song just starts. Like yeah. it was waiting for your eyes to open and you know, someone pressed play. That's been burning up this week, but I've always had so going back, you know, to the eighties, I've always had one true love. Uh, I have always had, I did some thinking of my 39 years on earth and I'm like, that is my favorite song on this record. It has to be, I can't lie about it. And it's the one you didn't mention. It's borderline. It's always oh, been interesting. My, I love that song. It's okay. never seems tiring over its seven minutes. It seems like it has <laughs> yes. like the most, it seems like it has the most meat on it to me. Like, um, I mean, it's still very immediate. It's still pop dance pop song, but um, it just the the moog like the synthesizers. They're a little lower. They're a little rounder. They're a little smoother. Like I love the kind of rock of burning up, but I love the like borderline is the most kind of like sonically round to me. If that makes any Ooh. sense, like it's it's a little smoother. It's a little sleeker. It's a less less of the Lynn drum and like the kind of the highs which i love i love that on everybody as well um and uh obviously burning up but i don't know borderline has always been my love it's it's like i love that song in 1989 yeah when i first heard it so i don't know um that's one i can't i can't get away from it it's literally it's it's truly the love of my life on this record beautiful um yeah, uh, and uh, it, but burning up is also hot, and um, I mean, holiday is always great. Lucky, st- I, at that point, you're you're in just the, you know, you're in a reservoir of greatness. The only clunker to me is I know it, 
Um, yeah, I know it. I think it's kind of clunky. Yeah. And think of me is all right. So I would say, uh, think of me actually grew on me. This, this record has like 6.8 unbelievable songs. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and for an eight song record, it's, it's just like batting it's, a thousand yeah, basically. Yeah, uh, so. you, you mentioned a couple interesting things there. And one is the runtime. Uh, I wanted to get to this because it's, it's just so emblematic of how different pop uh, is now versus then because there's eight songs here and the runtime on the album is 40 minutes which isn't super long but but given the length of the songs it's kind of hilarious like lucky star is yeah. 538 just yeah. just letting the melodies run borderlines 518 holidays 608 just <laughs> just letting the tape run man like uh those today would be two and a half three minute songs i would think but uh, yeah. I love it because like you just like the, the melody just kind of goes on and to, you know, another point you make is just, yeah, you can just let this album Borderline is seven minutes. That's wild. I, I have it as 518 here. I'm, I might've jotted that down wrong. Um, yeah. Border, borderline seven. Uh, seven every, everybody's six. Physical attraction is six and a half. <laughs> right. And right. lucky star is five and a half. What is this, and a talk talk album? Five minutes. I know, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> this was, I mean, certainly this was Madonna's beef. Like, too many musicians, too much going on. It's too much about the music. Like, where where do I fit in? It's like, Madonna, just settle down. This will be your... Everyone's going to like this. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I... Uh, did you have more? What um, I mean, because the next the next question is digging into a whole different bag. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I had on like uh, specific songs on the album. I, I guess I would close in saying that it's just a great album to put on and play. I mean, I know that you are the type of person that wants to listen to, to music by the albums. I'm that way, too. Mm -hmm. And this yep. is just makes our lives easy if we want to play an album that's just easy to listen to, you know, like just put yeah. it on, let it go. And going, yeah, going back to, you know, kind of what we were discussing, the the size of the stardom where it, it starts to like, almost like obfuscate the music, it gets in the way. Yeah. It's like, like Kanye, like Kanye and Madonna, let's just start there, you know, using Ooh. analogs, okay. like people have so much or like, even ah, Beyonce to a lesser degree, but think of a pop star. I mean, there are many examples but their star burns so bright that I don't know if people are putting on the albums and like listening that to them from A to Z. That is a, definitely not how the world works now. It's not how the world's going to work in the future. People don't have the attention span to listen to 41, even Madonna. Like this record is such a party, but how many people are sitting down? Like I'm going to go from A to Z on this record. It's like, you would be doing yourself a great service if you did. Yeah. But like, you know, this is an album created by an artist meant to be listened to. Like this is, you got to go from A to Z with these things. Like Kanye, say what you want about Kanye. The albums are amazing. amazing. The records themselves are great when you don't have to consider all the social media and all His of the Twitter who said what and the Trump hat and the fucking dick pics. It's like, <laughs> I just want to listen to the goddamn record and tell yeah. you what I think about the art itself. And it was really refreshing to uh, kind of rediscover how great this this record is. Um, Agreed. Yeah, man. Uh, I think. But the, I think we can close it out there. Go ahead. 
but the, but the production so the production that leads right into the making of this um what what did you dig up and interesting insights stories about the production um anything additional to add kind of like the I, I don't have anything super dynamic but i've got a couple things um so Entertainment Weekly in 2008 did 100 best albums since 1983. I wrote down the top five albums that come up in that. Do you have any guesses as to which uh, albums those might be? Uh, repeat. Sorry, repeat the question. Or No sweat. Uh, Entertainment Weekly in 2008 did a top 100 albums uh, from 1983 to 2008, and I, I, I'll oh, I'll say that number five <laughs> came in as the Madonna self-titled debut, um, and I'm curious if you have any other guesses as to what maybe the top five albums would be, or uh, you know any uh, other. I'll, ones. I'll, I'll, I'll throw some artists out and tell me how far off the you know yeah off the plan I am here. Um, eighty. Three to 08, uh, Nirvana. We've got no Nirvana in the top five. I'm currently looking up the uh, the total list as we speak. So no Nirvana so in the top five. Uh, let's go with like Radiohead or Prince or... Ding, ding, ding. Number one, Prince, Purple Rain. Oh, wow. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of these are maybe actually from the 80s. Dude, 2000 to 2008, what a strange time in music. I'd be 80... curious what records are, what's the highest rated record from the 21st century? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, so Rolling Stone, and we're, we're just kind of expanding the conversation here, but are you have you spent much time with the Rolling Stone top 500 albums list? Yeah, I haven't revisited it in a while, but I'm familiar, you know, I'm familiar with kind of what's up toward the top 20, 30. So they so this is interesting. Um I've I've been pretty plugged into that over time. It's just a fun thing to um visit and and was kind of a benchmark at least for for me as I was learning more about music. It's been mm -hmm. very interesting in the last couple of years. So they, they came out with that list in 2003 and they, they, they sourced like 300 to 400 producers, um, artists, like people in the industry basically to come up with whatever criteria they had for ranking these albums, right? So in mm -hmm. 2003, they come out and it's it's all influence, right? Like, like the top 10 is like Dylan Beatles, um, I think Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, Beach Boys, Pat Sounds, that type of stuff. So it's very hard to crack like the top hundred of that list if you're not, mm -hmm. you know, a '60s artist or whatever. And so over time, gradually, uh, Kanye album comes in there. Kid A breaks the five, the the top one hundred when that comes out. Um, that, that timeline doesn't make sense actually. Um, because Kid A would have come out before that, but I know that Kid A was one of the few contemporary albums to be included sure. in that. Anyway, where I'm going with this is it changed over time. They did a 2003. I think they did a 2008. They did like a 2015 in a similar model in which it's very hard to break into it, uh, mostly based on influence. But they just did one in 2020. And nice. they basically, I have to be sensitive with how I say this, but they, <laughs> they gave enormous space to African-American artists uh, mm -hmm. to the point where 
Uh, Sergeant Peppers had been number one the whole time, the whole run, but was bumped to 23. And I think like eight of the 10 artists in the top 10 are, are black artists. So say what you will, yeah. say what you want about it. it, it you know, they, they're, they're making a choice by doing that and they're, they're not totally wrong. But uh, so I think that in a way, I would say that that's, that list has been a little corrupted by by their kind of social I, their, their I social do. duty. <laughs> so. I, I, sure, I do remember actually looking at this right whenever they dropped it last year. You know, it was one of the pandemic, one of the pandemic uh, check ins. But yeah, I do. I remember Marvin Gaye going to number one, um, and all these other records that have been occupying the space for decades just getting booted. <laughs> Yeah. And I'll, I'll move us along here because I, I got us a little stuck in the mud. So to, to finish this point, um, Purple Rain was number one. Uh, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, number two. Octung Baby, U2, number three. College Dropout, Jeez. number four. American Idiot, number six. The Blueprint, Jay-Z, number seven. Graceland, Paul Simon, number eight. That's a great album. American uh, Idiot? <laughs> right. Hold on, hold on, hold on a damn second. Go, hold on. I'm distracted. Hold on. American Idiot. Is that Green Day? Yeah, bro. Yeah. Is number one? It was like number six, I think. Oh, I, wrote, I don't roll the credits. I can't even take the list seriously at that point. You're you're joking. That is, you are fucking joking with me. Well, what's what's fucked up about this is they nail a couple of things. Like, tell me, tell me the Madonna placement is is wrong. You know, like this this Madonna album we're discussing this, right I'm now. I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing this up. This is, this <laughs> it's is easy. Absolute... To, it's easy to Google if you just go Entertainment Weekly 2008 Top 100 Album, something like that. Oh, enter, okay, cool. I'm still stuck on the Rolling Stone one. Okay, keep, sorry, keep going. I. American Idiot threw me completely off my rocker. Yes. So again, uh, sorry, I, I think I threw us into the mud here, but the Rolling Stone album no, is the top 500 great. albums <laughs> of all time. This Entertainment Weekly list is uh, just from 83 to th 2008. Um, and I, I pulled it up just because our Madonna album came in at number five, which I, I found to be That's know, an really apt. Yeah. Uh, but then right ahead of out, American idiot, <laughs> right ahead of American idiot. It was just a, a hair better than American idiot. Uh, but yeah, to round up the, the top 10 Graceland by Paul Simon was number eight. The Winehouse back to black was number nine. And then in rainbows radiohead number 10, which is interesting because they omit all of the other radiohead albums that, uh, we had discussed and probably would place above in rainbows, but it is what it is. Yeah. I couldn't disagree with that top 10 list any more than I do. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting weird. to see this album uh, um, as a part of that that list. Uh, my interest, I mean, yeah, my, my interesting insight, I, oh, dude, I have like way too much written down, but Madonna definitely dated 66% of the producers. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it was great. Like there was a good, uh, speaking of Rolling Stone, I think it was an article there that was, uh, do I have it up? Yeah, it's um, Madonna, uh, how, how Madonna became Madonna in oral history that kind of goes into those early years. Um, Very cool. I thought, I think it's funny that, so Seymour Stein is the guy that signed them at Sire Records. Okay. Uh, signed, signed Madonna, her at, Sire. And uh, I guess like the first time I like this little story that the first time he heard everybody, he was in the hospital, uh, like on a penicillin drip. Jesus. And he listened to he listened to everybody on a Sony Walkman. <laughs> and just like blown out on drugs. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, we need it. You know, he's been he said, uh, he's like, Oh, yeah, I'd go, I would have 
like left the hospital and signed Madonna with my own money, like right there on the spot. Wow. Cool. Uh, I guess she came, she came in and visited him. It was kind of just, it was a done deal. Like right from the get, um, that DJ, uh, one of the producers, Caymans, I forget his first name. Um, Mark Caymans was the DJ that was like spinning everybody to begin with. Mark Caymans is kind of like, he was the coolest DJ in New York. And he was the one that ended up with, uh, he produced everybody. That's the only song he produced. Probably dated Madonna for Dated Madonna for four <laughs> months. Yeah, for four months, like like Warren Beatty and- uh, <laughs> Sean Penn, bro. I didn't Sean know she Penn, was married. Bro. She was yeah. married to Sean Penn. She dated right. half the industry, dude. It's wild. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, there's a there's a lot behind the scenes. Um, I'm, I'm sure again, this is something that a person could be if they wanted to a Madonna historian and just spend the next 40 years of their lives just writing documents about Madonna uh, if they cared to, which we don't have the time for. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot. But, to uh, go yeah, over for sure. A lot of good stuff. The Truth or Dare doc. Uh, I don't know how much of that really had anything to do with the production of this basically nothing but i know we both watched that and it was uh it was an interesting interesting watch uh, yeah doesn't really so, paint her sympathetically she's kind of like a she's kind of just terrible intolerable <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, i don't it was know a tough hand again uh, like a tour diary a lot of it is shot in hotel rooms as they're they're touring uh like a prayer in 90 and uh, this doc came out in 1991 Originally under the the title In Bed with Madonna, but in America that was banned. And so it had to be called Truth or Dare in America. And it still remains uh, In Bed with Madonna abroad. So um, it's very provocative. Uh, Madonna is maybe the most provocative pop star we've had. Um, and, you know, she shows her breasts in the film, which is like kind of an interesting tidbit. Like how much would Katy Perry's you know, tour diary self. It was like Katy Perry is topless on her new tour documentary. It would sell out oh, in gosh. nanoseconds, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting. I did find her intolerable, but I did find the level of um, access to be interesting, even retroactively. Uh, now that we have access to our pop stars in a way that we never really did before, I think in that moment in 1991, I'm sure that was pretty striking for a lot of people, you know? What else did you get from the from the doc, if anything? Oh, man. Well, I, I, I don't want to. Yeah, a lot of what you did, um, a lot of just her. Her diva attitude and just thinking about, you know, the stardom verse. It's, it was it's funny listening to this record and then watching something like that. It, it seems like you're engaged in two entirely different activities like on this side i've got the headphones on and i'm listening to her first record and like yeah. all this taking in all of that and then okay let's move away from that activity into two hours and 20 minutes of like the cult of stardom <laughs> and you know essentially yeah. watching like the beatles play on ed sullivan for the first time or something it's like i don't know it's it's disorienting uh in a way but no, that's I mean, that's basically what I had. We we both agree that this is her best record. Yes. Yes. There's a case to be made for like a virgin if you wanted to make it. Interesting. But this record is just this record is just cooler. It's just it's uh like we said, it's A to Z, even the song in a half we don't like. 
Um, but I don't know. I'm a ballad guy, so I really like. So on Like a Virgin, you got Material Girl, Like a Virgin, Dress Dress You Up. Those are the three on that. But then there's like songs like Love Don't Live Here Anymore, which I think was great. Uh, Pretender, okay. I think, might have been a great song. Um, but it doesn't. Yeah, it just doesn't have the like punch, 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 knockout kind of yeah. vibe that that the first one has. Um, that's a that's a perfect way to put it. I think we've um, basically moved into this category about about the best album, and I think it's a it's a it's a big conversation, but the uh, the answer I think should be pretty short. When it comes to the music, I just don't think it gets better than this, and I think this is something we disagree on because um, it, well we agree that, that this is probably the best album, um, but like a version I I didn't like. The first note I have <laughs> is. <laughs> Ballads followed by four question marks. <laughs> I was like, Dude, yeah, I, and, no, I'm a sucker. <laughs> I am a boner for those ballads, though. I like ballads in general, <laughs> but I don't. So the the way I the best way I articulated it when I was doing my notes was, if I've learned anything about how much I love Madonna sex songs, uh, it's that I really don't like Madonna slow love songs. Like they uh -huh. just like make me cringe. I, like a virgin, um, you know, you have material girl. She's starting to get into kind of social commentary and and that type of thing. I think like a virgin really is where she takes off and, uh, you know, becomes more of the Madonna that we came to know. And I think, you know, a conclusion that we both drew throughout evaluating this album is that this album kind of lives under a rock. It's like mm -hmm. it's it's like for everyone else, like a virgin is where everything starts. But this album is kind of buried and uh you know i think so, it's yeah. i think there's there's definitely some intentionality from madonna on that and i have a quote uh and that's um this is going to be my other kind of insight because i didn't have a ton of like nitty-gritty you know they played the bass guitar and then it didn't work and then madonna stormed out of the studio i don't have a lot of stuff like that but the quote i have from ricky rooksby's book the complete guide to the music of madonna someone who who did follow the path of uh you know articulating every twist and turn of, of madonna's <laughs> arc uh so this is from madonna and says the songs were pretty weak and i went to england during the recordings so i wasn't around I wasn't in control. I didn't realize how crucial it was for me to break out of the disco mold before I'd already finished the first album. I wish I could have had a little more variety there. And so it plays on this same thread that we keep coming back to that like maybe for the music it was best that she wasn't in control. Yeah. <laughs> I, and and she's, she's the first to tell you that she's not the best singer uh you know yeah, musically. She's only got a three octave voice which I was interested to find out. That's a great insight. And that that certainly, you know, kind of comes through. But I, I don't think her her impact, again, is creative. It, it, it clearly her impact was was like more culture. It's almost like uh, like Friends, like the show Friends. It's like you watch it now and it's and it's sloggy it, to me. Like, it's just like we just have better versions of what Friends is now than we did then. But that show culturally, like Jesus, I mean, everyone was mm -hmm. picking which member of the cast they were. Uh, yeah. Things they said became immediately reverberated around culture throughout the U.S. Early uh, so, memes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, creatively, they weren't doing anything dynamic. Seinfeld was running at that same time, same network, and they were trying a lot more. They were throwing a lot more curveballs. But Friends was just like, it was what it was, you know, and it was important culturally. But creatively, I don't know. I, I, this, this is a drive-by for sure on Madonna because I, I'm, I'm cutting her short to some degree, but 
<laughs> to me, that that's just where it lies. It's like her her impact uh, lies in in the chances she took uh, as a provocateur, and uh, you know, with the music. I think you know this was her best music album, but the rest of it, you know, falls a little short. So that's where I'm at with that. I guess. Yeah, I agree. It's it's the best. It sounds really good on vinyl. Uh, and, uh, yeah, nothing else compares to it. I mean, I enjoyed like a virgin more than you did, but come on. I mean, as far as like, you know, Saturday over Saturday over Saturday, this is the one when my friends are coming over, like, this is the one you're banging. This is the one that, you know, this is the one you want to, you want to hear though, as the, as the ballad guy, I do, I do, uh, recommend you pour yourself a nice, cold glass of white zin and sit back and listen to used to be my playground again (laughs) (laughs) nice i would say for me if we're we're, if if i'm going second it would be like a prayer in 89 felt like uh it felt like the ballads worked a little better uh there was still some songs with like some urgency and obviously you know the song like a prayer is the greatest pop song of the 80s you know like just like a totally iconic moment for music as much as I want to criticize the music that isn't on the first album. Uh, and I, I think that's where I land. I, I did want to talk about a few of the other albums um, that I listened to and, and, and hopefully not slog it down too much. But did you ever listen to uh, Early Years, that that electronic I, oriented I did, album? Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I went through it a few times and uh, again, just like, I mean, it's more shocking than this record we're talking about like yeah for sure you know it's definitely more you're more wowed by it It, it's more of a curveball she took chance she took a serious chance with this album um and and again this isn't a uh it's not even a full album i think it's it's basically like an ep it came out in 89 it's called Mm -hmm. early years it's a collaboration with uh otto von werner who i'm unfamiliar Mm -hmm. with but i would imagine is a electronic uh oriented musician producer arranger it did sound kind of german like some of the stuff some of those songs like had a german influence i have the perfect example for what this album is to describe to people this is this is good podcasting here right so i'm gonna try to uh try to nail this so i know you're a fan of the big lebowski right yeah so (laughs) this sounds like do you know when they're going through mod lebowski's albums and they Absolutely. find Kunkel's techno pop group Autobahn. Yes. So I feel like this is Autobahn with uh, like Madonna vocal loops. Yep. Basically Bingo. What it is. Yeah. That's uh, 100% accurate. Yeah. Madonna just needs to be like suspended or doing some aerialist like bullshit or something. Exactly, <laughs> man. Yeah. So, I mean,. Just start t- picking up from from True Blue, and I'll try to run through these. But in '87, she does the "Who's That Girl" soundtrack, mm-hmm. actually pretty good. Like, actually captures some of the urgency from the first album, but mostly forgettable. Early years is '89, interesting, taking chances. Like a prayer, '89, you know, massive mega album. Uh, I-, I would say to me probably this the second best uh a, a worthy offering the i'm breathless dick tracy album in 1990 and this is where like her 90 like the 90s for madonna are as weird as it gets dude like so that album to me is is just like trash it, it, like there really weren't even any songs that i really wanted to listen to 
Um, in 91, she makes the book Sex. Do you remember this? The book she made? Uh, I can't say that I recall that. So she made this $150 photo book um, that has like softcore porno pornographic images of her. Uh, and it sold out all 100... Uh, 1.5 million copies of the first edition in three days uh, because a bunch of dudes just wanted to see her naked. I mean, it's just good marketing, I suppose. But um, Sex sells. Yeah. So she does Erotica in 1992. Mm-hmm. Terrible. I, I'm sorry. Just a terrible <laughs> album. It's like it's like it's banging you over the head with all the like sex stuff. It's like we get it. You know, we, we get it. Bedtime <laughs> Stories. The next one is like a lot of the same. The Avita soundtrack, which I listened to the whole thing, which is just incredible. I know. Uh, I bless you. Seriously. <laughs> so it's it's an hour forty eight, and the movie itself is two fourteen. It's a musical, so obviously a lot of it is music, but it's thirty one songs. This one's interesting because critically, it stands as a success for her, and and um, the movie made money, and I think like people actually appreciated her performance and whatever. I don't know. I never saw the movie. Um, my only takeaway is that uh, Antonio Banderas singing English show tunes is <laughs> <laughs> not generally a great yeah. recipe. I don't want that. And then and then Ray of Light was the last one I listened to, which is interesting and was a little foreshadowy into where music was going with electronic pop and dance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ray of Light's a, a solid, like a, a solid album. Yeah, that's a good, like, late, well, for her career now, it's a good, like, mid-career um, but at the time it came out, I think it was critically, you know, people responded well to it. And I think uh, so too. Sold a ton yeah. of albums too. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Uh, there's a couple other comps. I'm just, I'm just trying to shoehorn all my, my, my shit in here. Um, I know I've, we could have, yeah, we could have done a part two if we wanted to. <laughs> I know. Uh, I thought that there was a Bob Dylan comp waiting there for me in that when Dylan in the mid 60s rejected the label of being the voice of a generation you know he's invited to the march on, jo- on washington for jobs and freedom in 63 he speaks not a lot of white guys there not a lot of white people invited to that one um and so people expected him to continue to be uh an important voice in politics and in speaking for the oppressed yada 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 he rejected that and he went in another direction and then he went in another direction. And that's why we love Dylan. But Madonna embraced being the voice mm-hmm. of feminism and uh, speaking out on things that weren't right. And she did not relent. And and I guess that's something I appreciated about her um, in this in the course of doing this research. Um, I had another one and that was the uh, an Elvis Presley cop both in the provocative nature of their um, performances, but then also in that Elvis's first album, I don't know how much time you've spent with that. But yeah, is that the one just like the profile one where he's on the front and it's just called Elvis? Um, maybe. It's, it's so the album, it almost looks like London Calling. There's like oh, London, pink. That's the London Calling one. Okay, yep, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, uh-huh. so it's, there's like pink and green letters, but it's, amazing it's just like it channels all of the music he'd been making it's perfect top to bottom and then for me like 
it's there's not a ton of us el- essential Elvis albums after that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in that way, I saw like the Elvis comp. So just shoehorning a couple comps in there. Yeah, like the, like artists that. that. Yeah, like a, it's I can get that like arriving, fully formed kind of deal. Yeah, and then undoing yourself and recreating yourself just after the first record. It's like. A lot of times the first record is the best. A lot of times the first record gives you in hindsight, the most insight, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. And when going back through it, a lot of times you get a lot more color. You get a lot more of the story. You get a lot of maybe what the artist didn't want you to get as their career progressed. You get all that on the first album. Um, And that's certainly true of, the self-titled Madonna record is that like you said, I mean, and you did a lot more of the heavy lifting going through the catalog of the next, you know, 15 years, but you don't get anything uh, quite like this in the records that follow. And there's something, uh, something very interesting about that. Um, For sure. That's well said, man. Uh, I've, I've totally derailed us here. Uh, do we want to uh i think we both agreed it was probably the artist's best album do we want to move on to the custom questions yeah i mean i i got a bunch of kind of random stuff written down i mean the the uh the softball question i would just like to know your pitchfork rating your personal uh rating of this uh to or yeah um and is it like i have the word timeless written down um if you could like maybe give me your rating and tell me like where does this hold up is this gonna go is this gonna go another how old is this album it's like going on 40 years old that's why is this gonna gonna go another 40 years like like rating and where's this album in another 40 years that's good man i i i think i would probably give the album a little higher ranking than pitchfork did i i'm usually pretty good with with the rankings pitchfork gives their their criteria typically is is generally rooted in how original is this that's that to me like that that's really where it comes from and if we break the album down through that lens i think in a lot of ways this album set the stage for a lot of dance pop and certainly set the stage for a lot of female dance pop that that happened and birthed the Cindy Loppers and, and all that yeah. afterwards. So I would say, I think you, you sent me the screenshot. I think they gave it like an 8.2. I'd go, I'd go leaning on nine. I'd say like 8.8, 8.9, something like that. And then the, the second stage was, was the, the legs that the album would have. I mean, this is a deep conversation too, because we, we agree that it kind of lives under a rock, uh, it came out of nowhere to me. I, I had this random impulse to listen to Madonna's music and naturally started with the first album. Otherwise, you know, I would have magnetically been drawn to like a virgin, like a prayer, some of the the bigger, broader albums that made her who she was. So I think it's going to continue to struggle to be to have some level of awareness on file with those bigger albums. But as far as like people that appreciate music, listening to the album and appreciating it, I think that that cycle seems to want to continue. And, um, you know, if 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 people that care about music put this on, like there's no way they're not going to continue to like it. I know it's a pretty vague answer, but uh, I think that's the best I got. I think that's good enough. 
Hey, what, uh, what, what do you got for me? You have a, a custom question for me? I, uh, yeah. So I have kind of two. Um, what was, first, what was Madonna's best movie? And I know that would be limited based on the ones you've seen, of course. But then also, what was Madonna's biggest strength, which is super broad, and you can take that however you like. I mean, League of Their Own is just so great. 100%. There's no, there's no other debate. That role uh, is perfect just, for her. It's, it's hard. You know, when it, if, it's, if it seems too easy, sometimes it's just too easy, and you just you just take a bite of the apple and, and that's all right. You're like, that's a nice, good, sweet apple. Uh, that's the honey crisp. Uh, uh, it's the honey crisp apple of Madonna movies, a league of their own. Dude, it's perfect. And and I think there's a bigger thing here in that her first role, I'm blanking on the movie, um, but she plays kind of the um, overstated uh, friend uh, in, in like her first role. And she was really good in that too. I think that's what kind of launched her, her movie career and in, in a league of her, their own, she's playing like the friend who's like, you know, little, little loose, like, like plays it fast and loose. And like, that just like is where she landed. That might be, be like where she's best, but she always wanted more. She always wanted mm -hmm. to be the leading person. You know, maybe she was, uh, in that sense, like the better Pippin than the MJ, but she always wanted to be MJ. So <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's how I would actually answer the second part of your question. She was MJ. She was, she was competitive. She wanted she it. Knew, she wanted it. She wasn't going to stop. She wasn't going to take no for an answer. Just her persistence, her, her poise, her like, despite the fact that she's a diva, she's like very self-contained. She mm. doesn't completely, you know, like, sure, when we did, when we roll up the sleeves and dig into these documentaries and the stories behind the music and all that stuff, she seems like she was a little, you know, like cantankerous and stuff like that. But nothing that like derailed, you know, she never derailed her career. Like, she never did anything completely uh, like outlandish and made a fool of herself. I think she just, is a type A personality who had a pretty grand opinion of herself and knew she was a star before everyone else did. And that Perfect. just that psychic makeup is, I mean, let's be honest. It's like what it takes to be a star. And it's she true. just had it hardwired in from day one. She took everything personally. There is some, some MJ, some MJ comps here that were <laughs> hanging from the tree for sure. That's cool, man. Well, I think we did it, man. Anything else you yeah. want to wrap up with on, on Madonna? Nah, this is this is great. I hope we can uh, continue to do this. Thanks for inviting me in. Uh, I uh, had a blast. Let me ask you something. When did music become so important? It's always been important. I mean, jingles, yeah. But no, everybody keeps coming in looking for a, some song. And they're so specific. You love specific. But I have no idea what's going on out there. Well, no one can keep up. It's always changing. So, James, what is the album going to be? The album is going to be It Was Written by Nas. Nice. Nice, Nas dude. Nas's second album, the album he put out right after Illmatic, or, you know, it was the album that came after Illmatic. 
it was written. That's what we're going to do. Outstanding, dude. Uh, so um, in my evaluation, uh, you know, we've connected on hip hop uh, quite a bit over the years. And uh, I kind of thought you'd go hip hop. Uh, I thought you might go yin and yang and pick a rock album and then like kind of lead me to do a hip hop album or something like that. But uh, you what I was thinking I was going to do or what I was planning yeah. on doing. I was planning on doing this all the way up until like a couple hours ago. Okay. When I, when, <laughs> I, when I remembered it was written, but uh, I was planning on doing um, Nirvana, the 1994 MTV live or the MTV unplugged. Oh, oh. that would have been but sweet that too. What process was, was like, I don't know how we're, I mean, obviously I don't know how we're going to break down the albums yet. You haven't given me the criteria, but yeah. um, I was thinking a lot of those are songs that are like, um, you know, covers of other songs and things like that. So it was like picking an album like this where there's concepts and it's all his and it's, do you, do you know what I mean? I 100% know what you mean. Um, in, in both cases, like with Nirvana, like there's a Bowie cover, there's like the Meat Puppets cover, there's all that, there's a lot of different layers there. Uh, but with Nas, uh, there's a lot to, to dig into as well. And I, I'm super stoked that you picked that because I, I actually went through a process today not knowing whether or not we were going to be able to record just, just because I had some extra time. And I, I yeah. pretty much zoomed in on hip hop. I was looking at like all time hip hop lists and I wanted to pick something that was like pretty ripe in like the all time hip hop canon. And I was yeah. I was pretty close to doing Illmatic, quite honestly. And, and, and as much praise and as much as already been talked about with that album, if we're if I'm gonna do a hip hop album, uh, at least in this moment, I was thinking I'd do that. Um, but I got away from that, and I'm really glad you chose that one, because I was thinking of you, because I was like, I actually thought about doing it was written too. So uh, that worked out. That worked out for sure. Um, so with my album, I like I said, I went through a process. I was looking through a bunch of hip hop albums. I was seeing uh, the uh, Public Enemy, It Takes a Million uh, to Hold Us Down, that album, uh, comes up so much. And I've listened to it once, and, never, and it didn't really stick with me. So I, I was thinking maybe I wanted to go in that direction. Um, what was the album that MF Doom did with uh, Mad Lib that gets a lot of uh, hype and credit? Let me double check this, but I'm pretty sure it's called Mad Villainy. That's that's exactly it. That's 100% it. I thought about that one because I know nothing about that album and it kept showing up on all these lists. And uh, that's a good one. The thing is, yeah, I would love to do that one. Or I'd be happy if you would have gone that way because uh, it's an album I listened to a lot, kind of at like the beginning of college. I had a roommate who was obsessed with um, MF Doom and Mad Lib for that you know, sake too. But um, it's... Uh, MF Doom is really, really fun to listen to. Okay. And and I haven't, the thing is, I know it's a great album and I've listened to it before, but I've never really dug too deep into it. Yeah. Yeah. Might have to stash that one and do it another time. Um, but anyway, uh, and the other, another one I considered like lightly uh, was To Pimp a Butterfly. And, and that's only because the, the only reason that, that I, I, I didn't keep it on the table is because it's just so dense. And if I were to have picked that one, I would have gone crazy researching all the different angles and all the different layers. Uh, so I wasn't necessarily up for 
for that challenge. But uh, I'll stick. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I was just no. going to say, I um I considered him a butterfly too. I definitely yeah. considered it. But then I couldn't remember um if me and you had already reviewed it that one time. On um I, I know we did damn. Yep. Did we do uh, to pimp a butterfly? I can't remember. There was that one podcast that we did at like I think two episodes of that was all hip hop, and I can't remember if we did to pimp a butterfly or not. Uh, I remember we very remember, well could have. I remember we did a Vince Staples episode or Vince Staples album yeah. on one of them. Yeah. And then we did the Danny Brown album on one of them, and then That's we did right. one with me, you, and your buddy. I forget his name. Maybe uh, Julian. Julian. And that was damn right. Damn, yeah. Damn's a little overlooked, I think, at this point. I think as things like come out into this internet environment, things get forgotten pretty quickly. But I think Damn is low key like a super, super great album, you know? It really is, yeah. And I know we're not gonna get get too deep right now, but maybe in the next episode when we or you know, when we dive into it, um, I have a lot of opinions on that and like why artists like Kendrick and those kinds of guys aren't gonna be able to be as successful anymore as far as like selling albums and getting into a mainstream kind of thing. Like just Ooh. the way that the way that hip hop has changed, um, it, it'll, I don't think it'll ever be the same, but that's, that's a, that's what a tease. That, that's a killer tease right there. That's what that's called. right there. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, all right. So what I landed on and as soon as I found it, I, I kind of, it kind of stuck with me. Um, and it's one that uh, I I've known for a long time but I've never really done the deep dive. And even as you approach it and kind of read around the edges, it, it the production and the um, kind of uniqueness and singularity of it are all really interesting. And that's the Miseducation of Lauren Hill by oh. Miss Lauren Hill. So, uh, oh. I, I mean, how much time have you spent with that one? Is that gonna be brand new or? Embarrass, embarrassingly little time. Okay. Okay. It's something that I've always wanted to dive into a lot harder. Yeah. Like the amount that I've listened to it is, is shameful for, you know, considering myself a pretty, pretty well versed in hip hop and like the great yeah. albums over the years. Um, I do to be 100% honest. Like I really feel like I kind of skipped over that one. Like I know I've listened to it here and there a few songs, but like I really did kind of skip over that album. So I'm so happy you picked that. Yeah. Good, good, good. I, I didn't know where that was going to land for you. Um, I am very excited that I mean, that album came out for me when I was in seventh grade. And I remember it, but I just remember that thing, the single really. Um, and I had no idea that it was uh, at the time going to have the impact that it did. And um, would would go on to have like the, the legacy that it did, uh, especially considering it's her only album. Um, and then, you know, she had, there was all these legal issues with it, uh, after the album came out. So good. I, I'm I glad that you're stoked about I it. Know, I don't know that much about it at all. Like all the, you know, the pop culture stuff surrounding it or like, you know, outside of the actual album, I don't know too much about that at all. So, and, and Lauren Hill and Nas, that's so perfect. That's perfect, dude. I'm so glad you went with It Was Written. I <laughs> That's that's awesome because I think we'll get to dive into some of the Nas conversations I, I may have wanted to have uh, had I gone that route. So awesome, dude. Uh, it's going to be great. Um, it seems like, it sounds like this is going to be the first Music Friends episode that we're going to be able to do in person as we'll be on vacation together. So uh, it's going to be great, man. Can't wait, dude. 